Star Wars 7x7 episode 2963. Today it is the second half of my wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Chris Kempshaw, the author of, among other things, The History and Politics of Star Wars. Punch it! Hey Rebel Rouser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7, your daily dose of Star Wars joy. And thank you so much for joining me for it. So once again, here is Chris's CV in brief. Chris is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter and a senior research fellow at the Center for Army Leadership, Royal Military Academy, Standhurst. He is a historian of the First World War as well as popular representations of history in modern media. He's authored numerous academic works including the First World War in computer games and British, French, and American relations on the Western Front, 1914 to 1918. And also, I didn't mention this yesterday, but he is a co-author, along with Cole Horton and Jason Fry and Amy Ratcliffe, of Star Wars Battles That Changed the Galaxy. If you've already listened to the first half of this conversation, you know that it was a very wide-ranging one, and the second half is going to be no different. We're going to kick things off by talking about Disney's willingness to consider the traumatic effects of warfare in their storytelling. Or perhaps I should say Lucasfilm's willingness to explore these since they've been acquired by Disney as compared to what they had been willing to do in the past. We'll also talk specifically about First World War references because Chris is, as I just mentioned, a First World War historian. So that's one that doesn't necessarily play as big in Star Wars storytelling for reasons we'll get into, but we'll flag where it actually happens. We'll also talk about the notion of dictatorship from the center out and looking at the empire as a prism through which we can interpret real world events. We'll also take a much harder look at the Jedi. And I have to say that was one of the things, as I mentioned in the review yesterday, or on Friday, excuse me, uh, that really kind of slapped me in the head basically. We'll also talk a bit about the High Republic and about the potential for future projects and also what he's working on now that is utterly not Star Wars to kind of cleanse the palate as it were. And that's what we've got on tap. So let's get into it. Without further ado, here is the second half of my conversation with Dr. Chris Kempshaw, the author of, among other things, The History and Politics of Star Wars. And I'll say too that I, I feel like just our own cultural you know changes and understandings of things have also helped to inform the way that we that we all do star wars like for example one of the things that you brought up in the book is how current star wars storytelling seems to be a little bit more eager is perhaps not the right word but willing certainly to talk about the traumatic effects of war and of battle in a way that, I mean, in Return of the Jedi, you know, we see a, you know, a, a bit of fire from a stormtrooper or a scout walker and it hits an Ewok and there's a brief heartbreaking scene where one's, you know, over the, the body of the other. And that's essentially like all you get for the horror of war for all intents and purposes in the original trilogy. But now with things like Rogue One and like uh, Battlefront novels and Alexander Freed's Alphabet Squadron and what we're probably gonna be seeing in the Andor series, um, it seems like just culturally Star Wars is allowed to kind of explore this topic in a way that generationally previously it wasn't. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. And, and your, your kind of morning Ewok example is a really good one as is luke skywalker finding the incinerated body of his uncle and aunt and then going anyway 
um, <laughs> and never mentioning them ever again. Um, right. <laughs> from a, from a baby um <laughs> you're right that this this new kind of uh, wave that of, of kind of what we might call the disney canon is is exploring you know the the horrifying effects of war you know i think a lot of people certainly i did when it, like alexander freed's um first alphabet squadron book came out it's like it's going to be like the x-wing novels from my clay sackpole and and, and mm. aaron alston and it really isn't um <laughs> because you know alexander freed has created a fascinating kind of grim examination of trauma of of fighting in a in a galactic conflict um mm -hmm. and you've got like little snippets of that in the old x-wing books but what would often happen is you know a pilot would die everybody would be sad they'd have a social event everyone would be happy again and then the <laughs> the, the, the plot kind of kind of carries on whereas you know yes. what you see over like even in the aftermath books and in the alexander freed's books is just how how exhausted and eroded everybody is by participating in in a war that you know most of the people participating in it from the rebel side would absolutely probably describe as being a just conflict against the empire you know the overthrow of a of a horrible dictator that to ship that perpetuates endless genocides and yet by the end of it they are broken shattered people and mm -hmm. you know that's that's what all of those guys in uh, what all of those rebel fighters in in rogue one are you know who, who volunteer to go to scarif they also you know we've done terrible things to to support the 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 the, rebe the the rebellion but now we want to we want to go and do something meaningful and you know the meaningful thing for them is to you know basically sacrifice their lives for the greater cause um and i think it's super interesting the extent to which you know, this current wave of Star Wars material is willing to, you know, look very squarely in the face of warfare and go, it's not that heroic, kids. And it chews everybody up, regardless of how valid your cause is. And these are the people who are going to survive and they're going to be deeply traumatized by it. And, you know, there's an element of you think this is a kid's film. <laughs> this, is this is supposed to be for, you know, there's an element of, you know, this is supposed to be for children. But, you know, this is the reality of the reality of warfare. You know, at my at my heart or kind of my my background is, you know, I'm a First World War historian. I've read endless stuff by First World War soldiers, you know, who came out of that experience deeply, deeply damaged. So reading stuff like, you know, the the Alphabet Squadron books, it's not it's not a great leap away. Alexander Freed's done an amazing job with them. I think they're fantastic books. And um, I you know have to ask, like, there's and reading the book. I did not actually see you make mention of the First World War quite a lot in terms of Star Wars storytelling and references therein. I wonder if that has to do with the fact that we're just not generationally looking at uh, a set of storytellers that are certainly deeply affected by it in any personal way, but also then just does it happen to be that, oh, we have a novelist who also happens to be a First World War buff. We don't see a lot of, of references to that. In there, do yeah, um, there was definitely an element of, you know, it, it's uh, when you're first world war historian. There's that element of, you know, give a man a hammer and he sees every problem as a nail. Uh, <laughs> give a give a first world war historian a Star Wars book and he'll he'll read as much first world war into it as as, as he's <laughs> likely to do. Um, and you're right that there isn't, you know, certainly in comparison to say Vietnam or the Second World War, the first world war does not appear in Star Wars to the same extent. I think part of that might be that. It's not as present in American culture as it is in British culture. I mean, Britain over here, you know, the First World War occupies a very big place in our kind of national understanding. Whereas I think, you know, the Second World War and Vietnam provide for America what the First World War and the Second World War provide for, for, for Britain. Um, 
But what's interesting is is the ways in which the First World War appears. So um, if you think about, um, let's say, um, The Empire Strikes Back and even Rogue One to an extent and um, Solo and The Last Jedi and a variety of, of other kind of expanded universe books and like, whenever the rebels are faced with a battle which looks like it's going to be hopeless and pointless they start digging trenches um and then <laughs> ah. they enter first world war mode of you know mm-hmm. oh if this is going to be a, a battle of pointless sacrifice we're going to need to start out under sea level so we you know get a spade start digging once we're six feet down we can start having a proper trench battle and then when we go over the top and die it'll it'll chime it's that pop history feeling moment of people going oh mm-hmm. you know i've you know i've encountered elements of this before so you do get that kind of first world war hopeless sacrifice element at times that appears in star wars which is quite interesting yeah yeah you're right you're absolutely right um i do want to circle back to a, a cultural thing a sort of a different cultural thing that um i think has come up as well which is you know something in in the andor trailer that um came out not too long ago where Stellan skarsgård's character luthan rail says that the empire is you know choking people so slowly that we like don't realize that i'm paraphrasing but like that also seems to my mind to be a very sort of coruscant way of looking at things. Like, I don't think people in the Outer Rim would necessarily say that they're being choked very slowly. No, know. I don't think they would either. I think being stamped in the face by a stormtrooper for all eternity would probably be a, a more accurate... Right, exactly. Um, and so this is something that you but... touch on as well. Yeah, the idea that um, I've kind of... Uh, dictatorship from the center towards the outside or kind of from the center towards the periphery in the in the middle of empires it all just seems fairly or kind of dictatorship it seems fairly normal to an extent once you understand the rules of a historical dictatorship you know you don't speak out against the government you you know you don't read certain books you don't make certain speeches and like and if you do then at three o'clock in the morning someone's going to kick your door in and drag you away and you're never going to get seen again um but you know at the same time if you turn your tap the water comes out so you know there's an element of predictability to, to dictatorship societies but that exists in the metropole in the center of them out in the outside and in the periphery where you know the expansion is taking place you know out of sight out of mind from everyone living in Moscow or Berlin or London with the British Empire. Um, That's, you know, people there are not believing themselves to be slowly choked to death. They're believing themselves to be conquered um, and then oppressed as a result of it. Um, And one of the interesting things that you see in in the kind of the modern Star Wars, again, with this kind of reimagining of the empire, is um, there's um, a book called The Empire Triumphant, um, which I think is by Kevin J. Watmore Jr., where he wrote before Disney kind of properly took over um, Star Wars, that actually it's very hard to tell how imperial the empire is. Do Mm. they have colonies? Do they expand their borders and the like? Um, And he's right. You know, if you look back at the old... at the kind of the, the original trilogy, they talk about, you know, the empire tightening its grip on its star systems, but that doesn't mean that they're going shopping for their next door neighbors and you go going, oh, that's a lovely planet you've got. There would be a shame if something awful was to happen to it. Um, <laughs> yes, but, that's but true. What we do see now is in Solo and in Rebels and the like is the empire is constantly expanding. They look at their next door neighbor and go, you've got a really nice natural resource there and yeah, you know yeah. what finders keepers um and <laughs> right. here come the atsts and here come the atats and here come the star destroyers and the empire was gobbling up the outer rim and you know all of those planets out there and they're not stroke they're not 
throttling to death. They're annihilating them. They are mm -hmm. conquering them and ruling them as an empire. Um, and I think that will be a really interesting aspect of Andor. I'm so looking forward to it. There's a part of me that's really annoyed that it didn't come out when I was writing the book. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> got to draw a line somewhere. But right. I think that that difference between probably what Cassian is seeing out in the conquered areas of the empire and what Mothma is seeing and everybody's seeing in the center at Coruscant is a wildly different view of the empire. And you got a little bit of it in Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, they're talking in mm -hmm. Old Ram, which is, you know, core world about, you know, the there's still issues with slavery in like in the empire. It's like, well, I, I imagine that if you if you go to the outer rim, you're going to find out exactly how much of an issue with slavery there really is. Right. Because, um, you know, that's that's where the empire is. That's where the cutting edge of the empire is. Mm -hmm. And and particularly of alien species as well, which then, yes. you know, has its um, real world comparative with, um, you know, different ethnicities and um, and issues that are still occurring, unfortunately, in some aspects of the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the empire then becomes um, a prism through which you can see all of these kind of historical prejudices and oppressive natures and like but repurposed for you know star wars world but again you didn't you didn't need a history degree to be able to unpick some of this and go i, I think there might be you know i might there might be some real world context towards this oppression <laughs> of these very particular races there's one other you know real world thing that i'd love to explore with you too and that has to do with the jedi and it it seems like it should be so obvious but when i was reading your description of you know the Jedi as essentially tools of the state and thus limited by what the state would allow it to do it was kind of head smacking for me like yes that's like it's right in front of you like yes of course and so when Qui-Gon is talking about yeah I didn't come here to free slaves and it's kind of presented as like ha, like oops I yep that's not why I'm here but yeah, you so know, I guess I'll just leave then. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and everybody was just, well, you know, the idea of the Jedi as this, you know, incredible avatar of, of hope and justice and peace, like it's immediately undermined by that. And I, you know, I hadn't really looked at the way that, you know, that you presented in the book and I just thought it was fabulous. And then looking in particular at some of the things that happened with the United Nations and the genocides in Rwanda and uh, Srebrenica, I never pronounce it right. Srebrenica. Uh, Srebrenica, thank you, yes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, just the, and the notion that they only do, you know, what their mandate is as we see them in the prequel trilogy is, is a really difficult Thing to consider but maybe that's also an element of what leads to their downfall that they're not willing to go beyond their mandate to follow their moral compass yeah no i think you're i think that is absolutely right um in the you know the alternative comparison to the jedi as like the united nations peacekeepers is something like doctors without borders mm -hmm. who will travel to whichever country requires help and then help them um but exactly as you say, you know, in, in the episode one, Qui-Gon rocks up on Tatooine and goes, can't help you. Sorry, apparently I'm, I'm this devoted servant to the light side and it's my purpose in life to do good. But unfortunately, you're, you're, you're stood on the wrong side of the line. So I guess that sucks for you. Sorry, <laughs> slaves, I'll go home then. Um, and what's interesting about 
that is that you know there's a lot been and there's you know there's a lot in the book about the erosion of the jedi through the clone wars to a point when they can be exterminated and annihilated but it's worth bearing in mind the clone wars haven't started the clone wars are 20 years away um right. or so um or however long it is you know the timeline for that is very very odd um when um, menace takes place and yet the jedi are already like now sorry can't help you we you know would love to to eliminate slavery to make all of your lives better and act in a manner that is you know good and in keeping with the light side but you know i gotta do this by the book um so i'm going home um the jedi have already reached a point where their their morality stops at the water's edge um and are therefore a a fundamentally flawed organization if their purpose is supposedly to help people because the answer to that is well which people are you not helping? And they're the people who live next door, but they don't live in my postcode or my zip code, or they don't live in my state. So mm -hmm. unfortunately they're on their own. And that aspect of, of state approved goodness, I think is a massive problem and a massive flaw. And it's a massive critique of the Jedi. I don't think it's an accident that George Lucas has put that in or that the various Star Wars authors have picked up on it, the idea that you can only be as good as the rules allow you to be. Um, but the Jedi are making a choice. They are choosing to accept that um, that that structure input on them that, you know, um, Qui-Gon could have done whatever he could to, you know, bring Anakin's mother along. And you might say, well, you know, two slaves doesn't doesn't solve the issue of slavery. And you're right, it, it doesn't solve the institution of slavery, but what it does is remove an extra slave from slavery, which is, you know, a net good thing. Um, right. But no, <laughs> just, well, I'm gonna take your son and best of luck to you in, in slavery with this guy, I guess. And he, he, he'll he never get to see you again. Um, and off we go. And yeah, I mean, there's, when I was doing the, the, the book and looking at all of the various things, it kind of, it sounds it sounds overly glib to kind of reduce it to a sentence, but in many ways the Jedi suck. They're just <laughs> not good people. It's not a good organization. Um, and you know we're supposed to take various lessons from the Empire and the like, but I you know I think people need to take a very long hard look at what the Jedi actually are mm -hmm. um, in Star Wars canon and go, Did, is is this is this what we want? Is this what we're going to hitch our wagon to? Because <laughs> I'm not convinced, guys. So in that sense, um, and I don't know, um, you did make mention of, of a couple of High Republic things in the book. Um, I don't know how much time you've had to be able to dive into that stuff. But, you know, as you say that, it makes me think that one way we could look at the High Republic storytelling initiative is that it's almost an effort to, A, rehabilitate the image of the Jedi to some degree, but then also be by the end of this enormous multi-year multi-phase multi-wave super ginormous multimedia storytelling initiative that they'll sow the seeds of where we see them by the time we get to the phantom menace i don't i i get the idea for some reason in my head and i don't know if i've actually read this somewhere but i feel like the end point of this is the birth of palpatine um like i just in my head i'm like that's you know, where the High Republic period ends and everything starts going downhill from there. But I wonder if the High Republic is in a way to simultaneously rehabilitate the image of what the Jedi should be, what that avatar was as defined by Obi-Wan Kenobi when they were the guardians of peace and justice. Um, and then showing like the, the very initial stages of that corruption. 
yeah i think i think that's what it is i think firstly you know it's a time period that is entirely new so you know star wars authors can create whatever they want and it's a complete sandbox for them but i think this is supposed to be yeah that kind of highest point of you know the highest point of the jedi and the highest point of the republic at their most pure um and how they kind of interact with the world when they had all of these noble ideas and, and, and attempted to act on them i mean even with even that i was i mean i was incredibly pleased that um the high republic is an ongoing thing so i didn't have to incorporate it heavily into the book and horribly date it <laughs> i could just kind of touch upon it in kind of you know predicting directions that it might be going um mm -hmm. but you know you see you know jedi acting in out of you know very much out of altruism and turning up to you know attempt to do things and attempt to help at the same time i mean there's, there's a little bit of a caveat because you get things like you know they've um the republic have built starlight beacon to help kind of bring the light of the republic and of civilization to the outer rim and various parts of the mid rim and to, you know show all of these worlds out there the you know the glory of this and there's an element of did they ask were you invited or did you just turn up because you know that's a form of imperialism as well kids of kind oh. of like you know benign just kind of showing up with a massive billboard of what you could have won um <laughs> and, and parking it across the road from some guy's house um but um i, I think yeah they're, they're trying to show a very kind of idealistic world where you know the, the words and the deeds are much closer than they are in in the prequel trilogy um I wonder if at some point, and I'm kind of keen for them to not go down this road, because one of the obvious questions, you know, you know, Yoda's alive and they're doing all this stuff and, you know, they're, they're, they're fighting against the Nihil, is I bet they get constant demands of, are the Sith behind this? What are the Sith up to at this point? Because there must be two of them knocking about in this period, you know, it's like 100 years ago or whatever it is. Right. Um, and I kind of hope they just don't get involved in it. You know, the Sith are off doing their thing. They're probably quite pleased to watch the Republic struggle and stuff. But the Jedi are so fabulously powerful at this time period that you know they're biding their time i, I you know i, I want to imagine the sith as two guys you know knocking around in a station wagon um you know <laughs> like <laughs> plays their own scheme but they're not getting involved in the main in the main road trip or anything like that um and yeah i want to see i want to see a different form of of response in erosion of the jedi rather than just being oh it was this guy in a hood all along <laughs> surprise right. It's like, yeah, I've seen, I've seen that one. I want to see something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. So maybe five, six years from now, history and its uh, politics of Star Wars Volume Two: The High Republic. I mean, it would be super tempting. The issue that <laughs> I, the issue that I think I have to an extent is, firstly, I'm really tired. Like I. <laughs> I, I didn't ruin Star Wars yes. for myself, but I think I might come close by oh. you know, really unpicking the things that that you love. But because I did Battles That Changed the Galaxy and I had this opportunity to do like, um, you know, official Star Wars stuff. And I really, really, really want to do it again. Um, you know, I'd love to do more actual contributing to, to Star Wars canon. And I don't think that doing that and historically analyzing Star Wars can play well together. Because at some <laughs> point, you know, depending on, you know, and, you know, all of these decisions aren't mine to make. And it's not like, is it, it's not like I'm about to announce a brand new official Star Wars book or anything like that, because there's just nothing happening. But, you know, if it does happen um, and then I then release, you know, the history and politics of Star Wars 2 and hold up it and go, 
there's all of this amazing history in in Star Wars in these amazing books. Everyone's going to go, well, of course, Sirius Chris, you wrote that book that you're referencing. That's not <laughs> that's not analysis. That's telling us what you did. Um, all of your footnotes are things that I said to myself. That doesn't count as as research. You can't do that. Um, and at the same time, Lucasfilm are going to be standing on the side lines going, you can't do that. Um, you can't <laughs> you can't play both of these sides against each other. So yeah, I mean, maybe the uh, history and politics of the High Republic, I think that will be a super interesting study when they wrap it all up. If they do wrap it up, I can imagine it being a thing they keep populating for, for years and years. But whether yeah. or not I'm I'm the person, I'll, I'll very happily read it if somebody else wants to volunteer. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think another five year project might might kill me. <laughs> so what are you doing to cleanse your palate, non Star Wars wise? Like what? Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I mean, I've got like an ongoing like uh, like academic research job where I'm looking at um, kind of. Um, so obviously we had the First World War centenary, which I, I'm pretty sure was a bigger deal over here than it was over in America. Um, <laughs> um, but there was quite a lot that happened between 2014 and 2018. And there were there were particular groups and communities who just didn't get looked at, who never really got their moment in the spotlight and their moment in the sun. And the research that I'm doing at the moment is about those underrepresented communities like Southeast Asian communities in Britain or African communities in Britain or West Indian communities in Britain. What was their experience of the First World War and of, of British warfare or British war during the 20th century? So that's kind of an ongoing thing. I've also got like the 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 bridge between me first world war historian and me star wars historian was me as first world war computer game historian and various mm -hmm. kind of um things about the way that history and, and conflict are represented in computer games and there's various bits of that kind of kicking along in the background but i'm kind of in that that slightly happy stage at the moment of you know did book wrote book done um and now i just get to, to relax for a little while before before i have to figure out what i do with my life afterwards <laughs> well for anyone who wants to find out what you decide to do with your life afterwards where can our listeners and our viewers keep up with your ongoing journey so the book has effectively it's out in the world it kind of it lives i've seen people have been sending me pictures of it on twitter which just makes me incredibly happy so you know you can buy it people can buy it you know in the places that you buy books um you know <laughs> if you go to amazon you'll find it on on amazon if you go to um routledge you'll find it on on um routledge i probably will be sharing some um some discount codes uh, for like 20 percent off on the routledge site uh for people um around the time this um this podcast is going live um so yeah you can look it up you can look it up there you can go to my website there are a bunch of, of, of links on my website which is you know imaginatively entitled chriskempshaw.com um where you can go and find you know stuff about the books and some of the other stuff that i've written um and links to buy it there you can keep up to date with stuff on my twitter account imaginatively titled at chris kempshaw um on twitter and and exactly the same on instagram um it's the benefit of being the only chris kempshaw who has ever existed um you get to claim all of the all of the name things without wanting about having to put a bunch of numbers at the end of it um right. so yeah you know those types of social media are the places that i will be kind of talking about the book and you know if you like first world war rants or simpsons gifts in amongst your <laughs> your star wars content then you'll find plenty of those on my on my twitter account Fantastic. And I will put all the links to those in the show notes for this episode as well. Chris Kempshaw, the one and only Chris Kempshaw, thank <laughs> you so much for joining me on Star Wars 7x7 for the fantastic book and a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I hope everybody enjoys this. And if you go out and you and you buy the 
the book. Firstly, thanks very much if you go out and buy the book. And if you like it, then I will always be pleased to hear that people have liked it. If you hated it, don't worry about it quite so much. Um, <laughs> you know, go and do something else with your time. But yeah, hopefully you've, in, you've enjoyed this, this conversation and it inspires people to go out and, and read a thing. And there you go. That is my conversation with Dr. Chris Kemshaw, the author of The History and Politics of Star Wars. And if you go to our website, that's sw7x7.com, you will find information for getting yourself a copy of the book and getting a 20% discount from the publisher, Routledge. I'll tell you what that is right now. It's at Routledge's website, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E dot com. And if you use the code ASM, 07 at checkout, you will get 20% off your copy of the History and Politics of Star Wars, but I'll have that linked and the code posted at the blog post for this show's episode at sw7x7.com and also in the show notes as well. And that right there is going to do it for this episode of the podcast. It just remains for me to say thank you so much for joining me for it, as always, and may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be. Star Wars 7x7 is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited by their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2021 by Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.